The Moments That Make Us podcast is produced on Gadigal land, as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to The Moments That Make Us, a brand new Women's Agenda podcast that explores those fork-in-the-road moments that change our lives. We'll be delving into the life-altering moments of some of Australia's most prominent women and hearing about the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Shivani Gopal, the host of Moments That Make Us, a podcast series made possible thanks to the support of Stellar Insurance. Joining me on the podcast today is Taylor Harris, one of the most prominent female athletes in Australia, known for her impressive sporting career in the AFLW and more recently in boxing. Many Australians might know her from an iconic photo that went viral a few years ago. It was a spectacular image of her kicking a ball mid-air during an AFLW game. It set the internet into meltdown and has since been immortalised in statue form. But it was also the catalyst for a wave of online trolling and abuse on social media directed at Taylor, much of it hate-filled and sexual in nature. Ever since that time, Taylor has been outspoken about online safety and why we should never accept online abuse in any form. Through her advocacy, she has brought the online abuse faced by women in sport into the spotlight and helped pave the way for reform in this space. In this episode, we talk about the highs and lows of Taylor's sporting career, what that iconic kick photo means to her now, what it was like to be in the centre of an online storm, and the continuing issue of the gender pay gap in sport, something that Taylor has experienced firsthand. Her new documentary, Kick Like Taylor, is being released soon on May 27, and it is not one to miss. Taylor, welcome to the Moments That Make Us podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Now, Taylor, you were the first ever marquee player signed to the AFLW season at the age of just 20, back then playing for the Brisbane Lions. But your story started long, long before that, having had your start at football at just the age of five, playing with your brother because you didn't want to hang around sitting in the car and it just said to me, well, no one puts Taylor Harris on the sidelines. And so you decided to play and hence it set you up, I think, in your career and life. What impact do you think that moment had for you? Yeah, I think obviously, as you said, no one puts me on the sidelines or, you know, in the car board. So uh, I was always going to get out of the car and get onto the field and I think that that's how it all started and I guess that that's the way that I am like as a five-year-old I guess you don't really um, consider how this is going to be you know received publicly that's just the way I operate so I guess it reiterated when I reflect back on how I was when I was younger it reiterated that I was determined and I was unrelenting with what I thought was good for me or what I thought was going to be fun at least so yeah that's that's how I am and that's how I still am and it's definitely shaped me the fact that I picked up the footy all the way back then and yeah I've continued loving the game and taking every opportunity as it comes. And thank goodness you did because you were ready for it 
your parents were certainly ready for it. They they seem like the the model parents, and I'm sure you have so much gushing to do over them. But the world wasn't ready for it, and they weren't ready for you, were they? And you and your parents copped a lot of interesting comments, sometimes just musing, sometimes feedback, sometimes a little bit of abuse on, you know, you being there as a, as a young girl in what was perceived to be a boy's sport. How did you get through that time of your life? Well, people are scared of change for the most part. So this was a bit of a change. I was the first girl a lot of these parents probably saw on the footy field versing their son. So uh, I suppose the perplexing thing for people was they weren't sure what to do. And I guess that that scares people. They didn't know if they should encourage their son to do anything different, which clearly the answer is no, you shouldn't do anything different. I'm just a player on the field as well. But back then, and when I say back then, I'm only talking about, you know, 20 years ago, which now I say it out loud, sounds like a long time ago. Um, Yeah, I guess no one really knew what to do. And I, as a young person, never thought beyond, you know, I'm just playing footy. I'm just with my team, um, trying my best. But now I think back and um, mum, dad and I reflect on a few of the interactions along the way. And you kind of have to laugh because if you don't laugh, you'll cry about the way things were. And I'm just so happy that now a young girl doesn't have to you know, have those unusual interactions and you feel quite out of place. I don't believe that I ever bought into that narrative. I don't feel that I ever felt out of place because I was relentless with making sure that all I was doing was trying my best to play good footy and to try and win with my team. And they just happened to be all boys. And I just happened to not verse any other girls. I didn't really think about it, to be honest, when I was much younger. I had to think about it when I was told that because I'm a girl, I'm no longer allowed to play in the boys or in the mixed competitions. And I was 14 years old and that's a very outdated rule um, at the time. And when that conversation happened, it was just absurd. Like I, I held my ground physically and I was as big, if not bigger than a lot of the other boys. That's just how I, you know, how I was when I was younger. I'm a taller person. So I couldn't understand it. Mum and dad couldn't understand it. We asked all the questions and no one really had legitimate answers as to why. And at that time, there was no girls footy. Like there was no junior footy. I couldn't go and play under 16s with the girls. Like it it wasn't an option. And that's why it was even more distressing. Uh, I then had to go and play women's football, open age. And I think now if I, as a 25-year-old, am versing 15-year-old me, like it just doesn't make sense. I I was a stick figure because I was so skinny. I didn't, you know, I was still growing and, yeah, I managed to hold my own when I went and play women's footy, but I do think it was because I was scared. I just ran away so fast. Like it just, because if I didn't run away, I was going to get snapped in half. So yeah, I think that thinking back about those times, I'm just so relieved that no girl now has to go through that hurdle. And there are so many more options and uh, so many more ways that a young person can be exposed to AFL footy and, and women's sport. And it's not just AFL. It's all codes. NRLW is excelling at the moment and obviously soccer, particularly internationally, is is unbelievable. So I'm proud to say that I had to, you know, go through the frustrating part, but if that made things easier for the next young person, then I'm more than happy to have done it. Tam, I don't know if you add this to one of your many achievements, uh, but know that you have already shattered glass ceilings for young girls in sport and paved the way. The musing that comes to mind when I listen to you speak is, I'm not going to wait for the standard to be set. I'm going to set it myself and I'll create the rules along the way. And that's just uh, a goosebump moment that I had when I'm listening to you speak about you saying, well, 
there's no no footy for girls. I'm just going to go play in the boys' team and um, and I'll make it happen anyway. It does bring to mind, though, Taylor, you know, not just your incredible resilience and skill, but it makes me think about your incredible parents. And I know that we have so many parents who listen to this podcast that are thinking, gee, how can I parent in a way that I can I can bring up the next Taylor Harris? What do you think were some of the key things that, you know, your parents instilled in you to create the kind of drive, the kind of discipline, the kind of follow through that you have? Well, I think they just encouraged me to do whatever it is that I enjoyed. And that was the absolute underpinning thing is that I enjoyed it or that at least it gave me happiness of some sort. It was sport for me, but it could be anything for any other child. It could be music or theatre or anything along those lines. And I think the basics of just supporting, encouraging and then helping me as a young person understand that it's okay to do something different. Like at the time, of course, playing AFL footy, particularly in Brisbane because it's not necessarily an AFL state, it's more an NRL state. So at school, it was I remember it was myself and one other boy who played AFL. And so it wasn't even just how many girls play. It was, it was literally just two students in the whole school pretty much. And so from the day I started, I was always, I guess, up against it in terms of the norm. And I never felt that I needed to do the normal. But I guess for my parents, they, they would have had a more mature understanding of, you know, what every other person is doing it wasn't my thought process at the time but yeah they absolutely encouraged me to do do it because I enjoyed it not because it was what everyone else was doing and not because it was the way to make money or like we often laugh and say if that was the case like and ironically now of course there's been a few narratives about money and things but that's just not the case in our family so we laugh about the fact if that if it was the case then I would have been you know into golf or into tennis or something that has yeah legitimate financial gains. But uh, yeah, at this point, the only thing that I need is to enjoy it and to be part of something and be part of a team and be around people that are good people and have great drive and ambition. And that's, that's me and that's my parents. And I guess that's why I started in the first place. And I will forever say how thankful and fortunate I am to have parents like mum and dad, Lisa and Warren. And they certainly nailed it in terms of when I was young, helping me understand myself and helping me understand that just because something isn't as straightforward straight away doesn't mean it's not possible. And that's, yeah, that's what they did. Whether they realise it or not, I genuinely think they just were trying their best and they happened to nail it. Oh, they certainly did. Now, I had the great pleasure of watching a pre-release of your incredible documentary, Kick Like Taylor, which is coming out to Prime Video on May 27. Ladies, I'm telling you the date because this is the public service announcement. You need to add this to your watch list. Now, one of the things I found really striking in this documentary, and there were lots of striking moments, was how you set yourself up for each day, not just a big game, but even an ordinary day of training, you sat down with a book full of fat puppies, mind you, who had eaten too much food, I believe I heard you say, and you take a moment to write down your intentions, both physically and mentally. Tell me more about that ritual and why that's so important. Yeah, that's actually a new thing I've kind of taken on board. My partner suggested to do it and um, she learned it from, I think, a, like a leadership coach at her football club. Uh, and I thought it was a great idea. It's something that I kind of thought would, would be a good idea, but I've never put it into action. Um, and I've never really kind of bought into writing things down could legitimately have an impact on 
how the day pans out. Yeah. And then obviously until you start doing something, you don't really realize. And then I did. And I since realized that a lot of other athletes do this. Of course, it's a bit of a private thing. Like you do it in your own time, you write down your ambition for the day. And then, yeah, I I spoke to a few other athletes and they concurred that it was something that they took on board not too long ago. And it's definitely helps provide a bit of clarity about what it is you're doing. And it helps to make sure that you don't get, I guess, foggy in your mindset of what your task is for the day or for the game or for the fight, so to speak. So (laughs) that's what I do. You know, that's my little book that I got. It's when you watch the documentary, it'll all make sense. But yeah, it's got half a dozen dogs on it and they're all porcupines. So the dogs just make it a whole lot more fun. Now, one of the reflections that I had watching that documentary, Kick Like Taylor, was how you had this mindset almost of, you know, fighting clean. That was, you know, the the word that came through my mind because you opened the documentary by talking about, you know, how you were taught all about being kind. And yet you somehow felt really guilty because you don't like hurting people. And there you are in the boxing ring, you've broken your opponent's nose and you felt really bad about it. There are some really interesting parallels, right, between sport and, and people's professions, rather, where you've got to really get your hands in and, and have a really strong fight, but you've got to fight clean and fight with integrity. Can you expand more about how you do that? Yeah, integrity is the right word. I think the name of the game is hurting someone, unfortunately. And as I said earlier, when I started boxing, I, I went for fitness. And so I didn't intend to, you know, beat someone up, but in order to win, you have to. Uh, and I had to get my head around that. And I didn't probably calculate what that meant. I didn't initially think, okay, to fight, I have to You hurt someone. I, I guess I thought it was a bit of a, like a game, I guess, with boxing, I kind of imagine. And I've had to develop this because I have the issue with actually hurting people. It's like a scoreboard. If I manage to get my opponent in the body or in the head, I get 10 points or in my own mind. And I have quite a funny thing. Like if they get me, it's like a game show. The buzzer is like that bad buzzer sound. And then if I get her, it's like a like ding, ding, ding kind of thing. And then that's how I go into a fight with that mentality. And that helps me kind of get over the fact that, you know, I don't really want to hurt anyone, but it's the way to win and the way to achieve and I say we, what we're trying to achieve, because it is a team sport, Faris, myself and um, my training partners, we're all in this together and we all work towards this goal. And if I let anyone down, that, that would be, you know, more distressing for me than actually having to, you know, knock out my opponent. Um, the first time I knocked someone down to the canvas, I actually completely reaction. I, I hit her and then I put my arms out to try and catch her. And there's a f- few funny photos of course, the referee thought that I was, you know, going to, I don't know what they thought, but he kind of quickly gets in there and, you know, is worried that I'm going to try and do anything when she's on the ground, which I would never. But uh, yeah, that's that was my first reaction in the boxing scene. People kind of laugh about that because it's incredibly uncommon, but that's the way I am. And I've just got to get over it basically in order to achieve what I want to achieve. It shows that you really fight with heart, Taylor. I think the referee is probably thinking, oh, no, she's going in for another punch. No, wait, what's going on? Oh, she's catching her. Gee, well, that's that's different. And there you go, setting new standards for yourself, Taylor, everywhere you go. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your career because you've had some incredible highs in your career, but you've also had some lows. Um, your contract with the Carlton Football Club wasn't renewed after what was described as the worst season in your career. Now, we know that you land on your feet, and we're definitely going to talk about that. But I want to explore this concept of a down season. And I want to explore that because I think that in sport, profession, and in life, we all 
have these slumps and we don't normalize these slumps. We tend to all instead, you know, fight ourselves up and beat ourselves up about it. So I want to ask, how do you move through it, get past it and not let those slumps define you? Yeah, absolutely. I had um, a good perspective on the reason that my output on the football field was not up to my own standard, let alone anyone. I don't, at the time it was my standard that I was focused on and, and I wasn't able to produce that, but for good reason, of course, that was the COVID year, I suppose. Um, That's when we were in lockdown and things like that. And as you obviously would have seen in the documentary, I uh, have such a close relationship with my family and to have the borders closed, being stuck in Melbourne, not being able to see my family was um, an incredibly challenging time and then I believe that mentally like we only have a certain capacity at that moment to be honest like as, as much as people love footy and footy's great and whatever I couldn't commit my mind to football like it, it was not in my interest at the time like I just wasn't able to do that and then I was quite clear and transparent with that through the season um, but of course I tried my best to be honest and no one except for me and my loved ones will ever agree or understand but I was actually happy with my season uh, not necessarily about you know, disposals and stats and all that. So that doesn't matter to me. But the fact that I even took the field in my own world, I know that that was a feat in itself. So I feel like that was something that I learned from about that I'm stronger than I realize mentally and physically. Like, of course, in the lockdown here in Victoria, it was pretty intense. We, we weren't allowed out for more than an hour. So realistically, we didn't really get to train to the standard that, you know, you're supposed to. So I was already underdone, I guess, and then not have the mental capacity to even think about playing a game and then to actually get out there and play and try, you know, try my best. And there was moments in the season that I'm happy, I was happy with. But yeah, I I think back about it and I think of it of that season fondly as the contrary to what anyone else would believe. But I actually am happy with my output that season. And um, it's incredibly complex. As you said, everyone has up and down moments in their professional and personal lives. And I definitely had a challenging time, but it's shaped me and it has absolutely motivated me to now with the capacity to give everything I do and I have. And of course, um, it was pretty easy to let footy do the talking. And basically, if I went with the mentality that if you don't believe in me, then I'll go somewhere that does. And the media put out the narrative that it was about money or something, but that wasn't the case. Like I was simply delisted and, and I'm not ashamed of that at all. And then I had to find a new club and that was Melbourne and they believed in me and showed full faith that I would be able to perform to the best of my ability and and I gave confidence that I would commit everything to it and I did Uh, and it was pretty easy to let the footy do the talking but upon reflection like I have to laugh because if people want to believe the surface level of a situation and aren't self-aware enough to expand and step back and see the whole picture then I guess that's that's their loss, really. Like their life is not as fulfilling as mine. Like I have the ability to have a perspective on situations that I understand that not everything is as it seems. And I guess once you realise that, it opens you up to a lot more fulfilling life because you, you can understand why people do things. And it's quite interesting to realise that you know not everything is as it seems and there are often underlying reasons for that. Absolutely. And again, it comes down to being kind, just as is your mantra and one of your tattoos, um, I believe, as well from from memory of the doc. I don't have that on my notes, but I do remember seeing that somewhere in that documentary because I think 
it's so important to be kind to others, but also to be kind to yourself. And only you can be the best judge of yourself and say, hang on, in circumstance of everything that I had going on with my life, I am actually really happy with my performance. And I couldn't agree more about being really self-reflective and having that sense of self-awareness to be able to grow from there. I actually don't think we talk about our slumps enough in life and hence why I really wanted to do so today. So thank you for bringing that to the forefront and, and your honesty around that, Taylor. Now, this podcast, Taylor, is called Moments That Make Us. So I can't let this moment pass until we talk about that incredible kick of yours that was immortalized via a photograph and then a statue. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was. It feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? Like, it, of course, COVID happened in between that. And so that's pretty much taken over a lot of you know, our lives. But before that um, was this monumentous occasion that I had to navigate through. And as a young person, I was like, I think I was 21. I must have been about 21. And I was presented with a challenge that I could and I would have been forgiven with for, uh, I guess, pushing it aside or kind of curling up into a ball and saying it's too hard. And everyone, no one would have thought otherwise. It would have been okay to do that. But I made sure that I didn't do that. I was hell-bent on making an impact and trying to steer this conversation to be a productive one. And of course, it was about raising awareness and spreading the message that it's not okay to be sexualized in sport. That's how it started. And then it obviously just ballooned into this massive thing, which I, you know, I, at, the, at the time I felt incredibly empowered. Um, the support I received was amazing from near and far. And then I guess it just seemed to have been the moment in sport and not even just sport, but in, in society. I feel like it was a bit of a over the edge thing. Like it was the last push that people needed to get behind an individual who was speaking out against this. And that's basically what happened. And I felt that and I knew that I had a responsibility and I took it on board and I wanted to make sure that I was incredibly articulate. That's why I did only minimal media commitments because I wanted to make sure the messaging wasn't diluted. I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was accurate and what I was saying was representing and it was appropriate in terms of who I was speaking on, on behalf, so to speak. So yeah, that's that's how it all went down and none of it was by design. It was all just happened the way it happened. And um, I think back about it and it was a pretty full on time in my life, but it was something that I learned so much from obviously about myself, about the world, about the way people believe in a cause that is close to them. And there's always a spokesperson and I just happened to be it. I never asked for it, but I just happened to be the spokesperson for this particular topic and issue. And beyond that, it wasn't just one thing. It, it transformed into various different issues that I managed to bring in and, and involve different people to yeah shed light on some topics that were before that, I suppose, not really spoken about and just accepted, which is not, you know, I, I don't accept things that I don't think are right. So it's pretty easy for me just to stand up for myself and stand up for others. And you did indeed have to stand up for yourself and give that press conference and talk about the fact that sexual abuse and online bullying and trolling is just absolutely not okay. And, you know, what was so sad was that that moment for me when I saw it, I just got goosebumps. Oh my God. I mean, first off, I wish that I could kick like that. I mean, kick it all would be would be lovely to be honest, Taylor, but uh, but but to do that and to to have that level of flight, I mean, there was to me that was just inspiration personified, you know, at the heights that women can get to in sport, in life, if you simply believe in yourself. And to see that moment be dragged into something that was filled with so much sexual abuse was 
just not only disheartening and horrifying, but, you know, so much more beyond that. And you absolutely took control of that narrative and said, this is not on, I will hold you to account. And as you said, you became the spokesperson for that, but it also traversed into so many other things. I know that you said earlier that, oh, you know, with, with Carlton, it, you know, it was just delisting and the media sort of said, oh, I was after the money. I do want to talk about the money because I think that women should openly talk about money without any shame. I mean, now I, I don't know if it's true or not that you were asking for 150 grand. I know that reportedly it, it said that you were. That's not the point right? The point is, who cares if you're asking for 150 grand or 200 grand or 250 grand? Men get paid twice that amount on average to, to play the footy. Um, what is wrong with a woman asking for her worth? We should not be grateful for the opportunities. I mean, we should simply by osmosis be, be paid for what we like to do, what we enjoy to do, but we should be paid for that too. And that conversation got you into another broader conversation around the gender pay gap in sport, didn't it? It did. And I mean, for the record, the answer is no, it was not true. I never asked for that money, but it makes me laugh now. And to be honest, I kind of wish I did because then it would almost be worth it. Like then I could actually speak to it uh, with conviction, I guess. But I guess hypothetically, had I have, then you're right. It would not have, it should not have been an issue and it would not have been an issue because that amount of money is, is in this day and age quite average, you know, like it's an average wage, really, probably in Sydney more so because of the cost of living situation. But yeah, it does baffle me that people are so obsessed, particularly men obsessed with the fact that a woman would dare to even consider earning more. Um, It just, yeah, it's, I lost for words because it's just ridiculous. But I think the thing that I did acknowledge and recognize in the moment even though it was frustrating and it attacked my character, which is, you know, not the truth about that I wanted all this money and stuff. But the reality is when I was, you know, growing up, money was not ever a factor really in the way I operated. We were happy with whatever we had in my family. Like we, we were just happy to be happy and to be healthy. So money never really came into the question to be a narrative of, you know, greed and things. It just is not simply not the truth. But the thing that I realized is that this conversation is so important. And unfortunately, you know, it's me, like, again, copying the hits, but thankfully I'm a boxer and I can handle it. Um, But it was necessary for the development of women's sport. And that conversation has to happen more and more because then the door will finally get knocked down. And if, if it means that I have to, you know, deal with it, then that's fine. Like I'll, I'll just go about it the way I do. But at some point, down the line, somebody is going to get paid more who deserves it sooner rather than later because this conversation has happened. And so that was a big part of the reason after discussion with my team that helped me make decisions. And by team, I mean family, friends, my manager, and we had some advice from different people on how to approach this situation because naturally I wanted to, you know, say, you know, hey, that's not true. I could easily just put a screenshot that I was delisted. Like it's no big deal. But the reason we didn't necessarily shut it down is because it's so much more important than me. Like it's so much bigger than me. It's much more of a general society issue uh, and a necessary conversation to be had. So a bit bit of a necessary evil um, in my opinion. And that's why I took the dignified silence approach or the high road, if you like. And then I just let my footy do the talking, obviously. And I just have to wear the tag of, I guess the the first one to have been dragged through the media for a money reason or or whatever, but whatever it is, it is what it is, and um, I'm happy with myself. And I, you know, I know the reality, and my family and friends know the reality. 
And that's all I need. I don't need to convince some random person that I don't know that everything they read isn't necessarily true. That's their own issue if they believe everything they read. It, it makes me think back to the yesteryear of, um, of cricket, you know, and, you know, all of these, you know, male cricketers were barely paid anything. And it reminds me of how, you know, the AFLW is, is structured now where they're being paid very little amounts and they have to work, you know, jobs, especially if they're a non-marquee player and um, and somehow train and survive at the same time. And now we would think that is absolutely outrageous. And yet we have, you know, so many AFLW players who are, you know, paying, being paid tiny amounts of money and still working at the same time and still having to train at a, at a full-time level, it's, it, it, it makes me think of the future and where we should be. Taylor Harris, I have to ask you, um, you know, when you think, you know, five years, ten years down the line, what do you hope to see for women in sport? I just hope opportunity is there, the opportunity not to have to work full-time and be expected to, you know, come and train to a standard that is presented on TV as if it's full-time. It's like the expectation versus the reality of, you know, we're paid for, I believe it's like 15 hours a week, but the reality is every player does above and beyond, like probably double if not more, hours into training and to try and be better for this league because that's the expectation that it's generated and the investment doesn't necessarily line up from the AFL. And at the moment, of course, there's the dispute, like we're asked to play at the end of this year. I think we're starting in August and we literally don't know what's happening. We're supposed to start training again in one month. And we haven't been told if it's happening or if you look it up, it's a pretty interesting situation. And that, yeah, I just don't really understand how that's that's possible. And then we're expected to play for not much money at all. I'm not complaining. I'm just talking about the facts. But we're not. We don't complain. No doubt, we'll get told we're we're required back in a few weeks, and we'll all go about it. No fuss. Um, Everyone will get work off somehow, and they'll take a massive pay hit and potentially risk losing their job. There's players that are international and interstate that will have to make arrangements, leave their family sooner than expected. And there's so many stories like that. I am reluctant to necessarily speak on the topic too much because I am in a very fortunate situation and I've deliberately set up my life uh, and my work outside to be quite versatile. So I don't have to go through the challenges of asking for time off or asking for leave. I'm considerate of those players that do have to approach their workplace and and ask the question year after year and th- this year two times a- in the year. Um so yeah, it's it's baffling that it this is where we're at. All I hope is that in the near future this will be something that we look back on and think how did why did that even happen like that? And the players of course are already doing it, so that's not hard, but the league to catch up I guess with us and and the commitment we're making to produce this product that everyone benefits from. Absolutely. And they definitely need to catch up. And I think you make a great point, Taylor. This is not your burden or your responsibility alone. And I think players who are out there as as role models um, often probably do feel this great deal of pressure, but it isn't yours alone. It's a system that needs fixing, not you and your job to go out and fix it. We need to collectively support you and, you know, support all women um, in having that change. But it's it's, importantly, it's a system's responsibility. It's a club's responsibility, the code's responsibility to actually do that. Um, this podcast is called Moments That Make Us. And every time I have the privilege of hosting this podcast, I do a little bit of a summary of moments that made me go, hmm, as in insights that I really caught. And my page is full, mind you. I took so many, so I'm going to have to pick a few. Moments that stopped me were don't follow the norm and do what you think is right for parents, 
support your children simply on something they enjoy, not following the current path. Don't focus on a to-do list. Set your intention instead. I noticed in your sheet, there wasn't, I'm going to do this many burpees and this many rounds. It was, I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be focused. I'm going to stay present. There was a strong sense of supporting the people that support you. The way that you championed your coach was absolutely incredible. There's a sense of mentoring and coaching. You're constantly reaching out to people and getting advice and pouring that into everything that you do. A strong sense of team. You didn't say the word teamwork, but everything that you said today just poured out the fact that you are all about your team. And in order to win, you must fight, but do so with integrity and always practice kindness. Taylor Harris, thank you so much for being part of the Moments That Make Us podcast. Thank you. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Lovely to chat.